Welcome to The Report Card, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, and students. The coronavirus pandemic has upended the nation's, and indeed the world's, daily routines and rhythms of life. And the world of education, no exception. In this unprecedented situation, schools, administrators, teachers, parents, and students are all looking for guidance on how best to respond. So on today's report card, I asked John Bailey, who's an advisor to the Walton Family Foundation and a visiting fellow here at AEI, to come on and discuss his background in preparing for pandemics. See, in 2005, John was serving as the Deputy Policy Director at the U.S. Department of Commerce, and he worked on the interagency team led by the White House and Homeland Security to develop the national strategy for pandemic influenza. So John came on today to talk to you about how schools are responding to the coronavirus pandemic. John, thanks for coming on the report card. Uh, it's great to be remotely visiting with you today. Yeah, we're all in our little quadrants, but the internet brings us together, thankfully. So John, as I mentioned, you had a, a hand in drafting this, uh, this, this light reading called the National Strategy for Pandemic Influenza. Um, Tell us how you got involved in preparing those documents. Great. I, and I just want to be clear, uh, I was one small member of a very large interagency team. Um, it was quarterbacked by the Homeland Security Council. And it was to both assess our nation's preparedness for uh, a pandemic influenza of some sort. At the time, we were envisioning um, avian influenza. And what that would stress in terms of our health infrastructure, but also the public policy responses to that. And so there was an interagency effort uh, involving most of the uh, U.S. government to begin developing uh, a plan, but also outlining the roles. What is the role of the federal government? What is the roles uh, for state government? What is the role of the private sector of our hospital and healthcare system and also schools? At the time, I was working with a Secretary of Commerce and had the chance to work with the interagency team and thinking not just about the business response, uh, but also the, the different ways that school closures and other social distancing measures would be used in the event of a pandemic. So, John, let me ask this. This is back in, what, 2005, 2006. The Homeland Security Council comes out with this, but what prompted it? I mean, this was years before, you know, the H1N1 epidemic that, uh, you know, was a small foreshadowing of what we're undergoing now. Well, I mean, it was uh, started in large part to the, the person who's become a hero and sort of across the country right now, Dr. Tony Fauci. His role in government has been to study epidemics and to study sort of viral outbreaks and he was very concerned, along with a number of people uh, that look at sort of uh, critical infrastructure and other threats uh, beyond just sort of military and terrorist threats uh, to the U.S. And the chance of a viral outbreak, particularly one that was as severe as the 1918 uh, Spanish flu that, that sort of decimated not just the United States, but huge parts of the world. That uh, was sort of the lightning rod that sort of said, we need to think about if that happened today, would we have the capacity to respond to it and how would we respond to it? The report card is about schools. So let me ask you particularly about how K-12 schools and college and universities come into this plan. I mean, the, the strategy mentions them. What are the ways that they were sort of prepared or should have been prepared for um, you know what we're hit deep in now. 
It's a great question. And also, at the time when you're developing a plan, you're developing plans typically on a bunch of assumptions uh, about how past events have played out and what might be needed based on those past events to kind of prepare going forward. And there's a couple of assumptions that were being made as part of the, the planning uh, process, which is a couple different things. Like one, a lot of viruses end up infecting kids and younger people, uh, often at higher rates of infection than, uh, than adults. And anyone who's a parent out there knows this. They know two things. Kids get colds and they get viruses very quickly. And the second thing, kids are great vectors. They're very great at distributing viruses because they can't keep their hands off themselves, much less other people. And as a result, like uh, a school having a viral outbreak, these kids uh, end up getting infected. They come home, they infect their parents. The parents then go to work, they go to church, they go to other gatherings, they infect other people there too. And so one of the strategies you always want to use during a pandemic is slowing the spread, slowing the rate of the spread. And what a growing body of research had suggested then, but also now, is that by closing schools, you can slow that spread because kids become uh, less vectors of spreading it themselves. And it buys you time for the healthcare system to be able to respond to the patients that are uh, the sickest but also it buys you, more importantly, time to develop a vaccine because vaccines just don't happen overnight. Uh, and at the time we were anticipating in the plan, it would take six months to fully test and, uh, and deploy a vaccine. What it looks like right now in the virus that we're all facing is that uh, Tony Fauci has said it's probably gonna take eight to 18 months. Uh, and it's a little bit because like, as much as uh, the science of all this has improved, there's a lot of art to vaccine development and that it takes uh, a lot of uh, testing and experimentation to make sure that you're getting the right dosage and that you're not actually making a person a, a more of a carrier of the virus that you're triggering their immune system instead. So all that is because that's what the role of school closures was playing then and what's, what's playing now. It's to help slow that spread uh, to give our healthcare system the chance to respond. And, and that's part of the idea of flattening the curve. I, you hear that a lot. Uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, what do, what do people mean when they say, let's flatten the curve? So any viral outbreak, whether it's seasonal flu or whether it's a pandemic like we're experiencing, has uh, a number of cases that end up rising to a sharp peak and then it falls. And so you see this across hospitals and doctors every year with the seasonal flu. There's always a peak of people coming in with flu-like symptoms. Uh, uh, often needing a lot of really intense in, uh, intensive care treatment. Uh, and then that sort of peak falls uh, and it goes to the wayside. What you, what you want to do during a pandemic is that that peak can grow so rapidly, so exponentially, that the number of cases end up overwhelming our healthcare system's capacity to provide care to all those people. Because while we have broad, diverse set of hospital systems, there's only so many ICUs, there's only so many hospital beds, there's only so many respirators. And if you have a sudden demand for all those precious, scarce resources, the system becomes overwhelmed, and then a lot of people start having complications and, and higher death rates. We're seeing that play out in Italy right now. And so flattening the curve strategies or anything that can help lessen that overwhelmingness Flattening the curve is any strategy that helps to flatten out that peak. And that could be everything as simple as hand washing, it's prohibitions on gatherings of certain sizes, and it's closing schools. It's never one single thing. It's a combination of things 
that helps slow the rates of infection and gives the healthcare system a time to respond. Sure, okay, so that makes sense. So if you can get into the hospital with this disease, we might have a death rate of, what, 1%, something like that. But if you can't get into the hospital, for those people, the death rate might go five or six times that. So as long as we can keep the population who need to be in the hospital lower, we're successfully flattening the curve. Am I getting this right? That's correct. And you're slowing the rate of infection. Often it's the same number of people, same number of cases, but you're, you're distributing them over a greater period of time. And so the healthcare system isn't seeing a surge of everyone that needs that emergency equipment all at once. Sure. So I think at my last count, 41 states have closed schools. That's 44 million children at home by closures. These are some pretty big steps. Now, I'm not complaining about those closures, but you got to keep in mind that, you know, there's 44 million kids at home. This is a big deal. We're throwing a lot at this. So it seems reasonable to ask, what's the evidence suggesting that closing schools contributes to that curve? And, you know, where might it rank on the other things? Like you said, hand washing, social distancing, teleworking. Do we know what might be more powerful to flatten the curve? It's a great question. So at the time when we were developing the plan in 2005, there was really only one or two studies that had looked at uh, city responses to the 1918 flu pandemic that spread across the country. And what you saw was a tale of two cities in many cases. You had Pittsburgh and also Philadelphia that closed schools late in the process of their epidemic, and they had huge death rates. Then you also had St. Louis that closed schools very early and had that flattened curve that we're talking about. And so the, the theory coming out of that is that school closures, along with these other social distancing measures, was effective at slowing that infection rate and flattening the curve. There's been other studies that have come out since then, because we had a pandemic back in 2009 with the H1N1 virus, looked at school closures, effectiveness of slowing the spread of that. There's been other studies of viral outbreaks around the, around the world and the, the role of school closures. And so there was this growing body of research that suggested school closures are very effective. Now, we have a little bit of a conundrum when it comes to every new pandemic, and that's it's very difficult to know the type of virus that is going to trigger the pandemic. And every virus is a little bit unique. And it turns out that COVID-19 is also very unique, that, it, again, it's not really infecting or creating Uh, health complications for a lot of the young children that are in our schools. It's creating massively disproportionate complications for people who are older and have some prior health conditions. And what you had said earlier was that that's not usually the case, that usually with viruses, kids are the big vector, right? Exactly. So this, this plays a different pattern than the pattern that a lot of the plans had been assuming, which is that one of the reasons you close schools is to protect children from getting the virus and developing these complications but also to close schools to slow the spread of the virus to, uh, to other parts of the population. It, it seems like what a lot of government leaders and health leaders have been struggling with is that given the new patterns of this virus, it felt it was warranted to close schools to help stop the transmission, to break uh, that chain and hopefully slow the, slow the spread of it. But it, it should be acknowledged that this is a massive experiment that's going on right now. We've never closed schools at the scale that are being closed right now. And so scientists and health officials are learning in real time uh, how effective this is, how effective are the other uh, gathering bans and the other social distancing measures. 
uh, that are put in place, that will inform when we reopen schools, but it's also going to be a whole body of data and evidence that will be used for pandemic preparedness in the future as well. So, John, let me ask you about the timing on these things, right? There was lots of talk, and, and, and some districts sort of responding to maybe more specific threats were, were closing down, but then it was up until last Thursday, I think, when Governor DeWine in Ohio was the first one to pull the, the lever and say, we're closing all our schools, and then the floodgates had opened, and it was Maryland a couple hours later, and then 39 more states. My question is, what do you think about the timing of these closures? Um, are we on the early side of what the pandemic strategy would suggest? Does it seem like the right time or do we just not know yet? Yeah, I would say, and again, in fairness, I mean, these are decisions governors were making uh, that are very difficult to make. There's no clear sense of what's the right decision and the, and the wrong decision at that moment. That'll become clear with the benefit of hindsight. The, the problem is that by the time it becomes clear to make the decision, it's probably too late. Uh, and that's because of the, just the exponential rate at which this virus has been spreading. A lot of governors were making this decision based on what we were seeing coming out of the uh, Asian nations in terms of who introduced more aggressive social distancing measures and school closures early. Japan did that early, as well as a few other countries. And then also, frankly, what a lot of governors were responding to was just the terrible tragedy that was happening in Italy, where the virus was spreading. No one really understood why it was spreading quite as fast as what it was uh, spreading. The social distancing measures didn't seem to contain it, and it was just exponentially uh, growing day by day. And I think that, with the absence of really clear sense of what to do, it felt like the, the costs of underreacting were greater than overreacting. And so you saw some governors take some uh, aggressive actions. What most of them have done is, and this is the other reason why I think we saw closures when we did, right now is the time when a lot of students are on spring break. And so by closing schools, you're taking advantage of the social distancing that's built into five days of a break. And a lot of governors did two-week closures or three-week closures, thinking they could revisit it based on a better understanding of the science and decide whether or not to reopen schools or if they were going to close it for another period of weeks. Or as we've just seen more recently with Kansas and also the governor of uh, California closing schools for the rest of the year. So let me ask about the alternative argument. That is, hey, schools are a huge part of the economy and you know, the rest of the economy can't sort of get back up and running in any semblance with thousands of kids home because, uh, you know, parents have got to look after them or come up with something. What's the argument that, hey, let's wait for an outbreak. And when we see it coming, that's the time to close schools and be really aggressive right then. And do we have sort of the detection capabilities for this virus to make that a plausible strategy? It's a great question. It's also uh, another role of schools that was built into the pandemic plans that, again, based on sort of prior experience, kids usually are the ones that sort of show the front end of a wave of a particular sort of virus. And so schools play a, a vital role in what the healthcare system calls surveillance, meaning if you see an uptick of students getting flu, most likely you're going to see then a whole bunch of parents and adults uh, get the flu. Again, in this case, where you have a lot of students that aren't symptomatic, surveillance at a school is not gonna show that there is a COVID-19 outbreak within your community. So 
we need to rethink the surveillance measures. But you're right that closing schools is a really dramatic step because it has a lot of other ripple effects. A lot of parents need to stay home or get childcare because you can't just leave a seven-year-old or eight-year-old unattended. That disrupts a lot of things at work. It disrupts people's income, especially hourly wage and shift workers who just don't have the flexibility to work at home the way you and I do. And so it has massive economic and community consequences. And usually it's a decision that isn't taken lightly. And usually it's a decision that the CDC has said should be made by local health officials in consultation with their district. I think what we saw is, again, the way this virus was spreading exponentially, that governors felt like they needed to do this statewide because we didn't have their surveillance system or the testing to know exactly where the outbreaks were happening. So they were ready to be safe rather than sorry with this. So, John, I read some of this uh, document, this National Strategy for Pandemic Influenza Implementation Plan. You know, pretty catchy stuff. The section on K-12 schools and for universities and what applies to them, most of the advice was on what to do on the front end to prepare, not as much on the tasks that you jump on when the pandemic finally is on your doorstep. How would you assess our preparedness sort of in light of those things? I mean, how prepared were we given uh, what we should have known what to do? It's a great question. I I think there are two parts to that answer. One part, I, I think we just need to acknowledge and really celebrate that in a span of a week, you had virtually every single school close in this country and automatically start resorting to a bunch of other different types of emergency measures, whether it was school meal distributions or the way you're seeing communities and task force coming together to develop rapid online remote learning resources. Like, if if you would have told me that our system was capable of moving that fast in a span of a week, I would have said it's impossible, but yet you're seeing that. I also think that levels of preparedness really varied across the country. What I noticed is that States and districts that face other types of natural disasters, so hurricanes in Florida, blizzards in the Midwest, they've all had sort of continuity of learning plans. Like kids in the Midwest had blizzard bags, which is activities that they could take home, assuming that they would be not able to come to school for a week. Schools in Florida, like Miami-Dade, I can't say enough good things about Miami-Dade, but it's because they weren't preparing for a pandemic, they were preparing for hurricanes that hit them with a pretty fair amount of regularity. But you also had a a lot of schools uh, on the West Coast that don't face blizzards. They don't face hurricanes. They weren't quite as prepared. And so I think level of preparedness has been quite uneven, but also it's just been amazing to kind of see uh, the amount of ways that schools have come together. So I don't want to make light of what is a, a very tense and unfolding situation, but in some ways there's never been a better time to have a pandemic if you're in education. There are just more tools and resources available to students and to teachers and the parents now than ever before, including when we were developing this plan back in, in 2005. You have Khan Academy, you have Duolingo as an app for foreign language, you have Zern, which is doing online math, you have very cheap and affordable Chromebooks. There's a lot of resources out there both in terms of content as well as tools to help facilitate teaching and learning remotely. The CEO of Zoom gave away Zoom uh, free of charge for all teachers and and students in the country. So you're having kind of real-time video conferencing that's happening. Microsoft is using Microsoft Teams as a way of helping empower school collaboration. So in some way, there's a lot of tools, there's a lot of resources, 
but that doesn't mean that every single teacher is ready to use those resources. And so I think, again, you're going to see uneven preparedness and use of this by uh, teachers as well as by their schools. Well, yeah, it actually presents a different problem. And it's a good problem to have. But wading through all the dozens and dozens and dozens of options that teachers and parents have is, is really dizzying. I mean, at this point, for a lot of folks, they need, you know, a compass to figure out, um, you know, how to take advantage of all the options that are available to them. But given the situation, that's a good problem to have. It's a good problem. And it's also, it's a problem that is playing out in a different ways. Uh, Miami-Dade curated a list of content and resources so parents and teachers know exactly what they should be using by grade and by subject. Uh, the schools in Kansas, again, they had that task force that came together over 72 hours and suggested the list of tools and the resources that could be used and how they could be used at home. Uh, what's the time bands within uh, the, the, the resource should be used? And then also, I think we saw a wave over the last week of people aggregating uh, different kinds of resources. The second wave of that is going to be adding a little bit of a review uh, level to it. So making suggestions about what's good for certain types of students, and certain types of grades, what has had evidence of, uh, of success or effectiveness or quality in the past. Uh, common sense media, which has always been great at sort of rating apps and other types of online resources, is producing guides. So I think some of that will play out and there'll be more useful resources over time. It is remarkable, uh, given that, you know, we have lazy stereotypes maybe about how chlorotic and slow moving our K-12 education system is. And then when you, uh, you know, really give it a goose in the rear, it can kind of uh, <laughs> jump into action. So, John, question that I don't think is fair to ask, but everybody wants to know the answer. So I'm going to ask it. How long do we think this lasts as far as school closures? It's a great question. Uh, and I wish I knew. I wish anyone knew. I don't think anyone knows as of right now. Uh, CDC guidance, based on their modeling of this particular viral strand, is suggesting two-week closures and then reevaluating. And so I think what we're going to have is at the end of March, a bunch of states reevaluate whether or not schools should be closed for another two weeks, close to the end of April, or as we've seen in some cases, uh, closing to the end of the year. That might be too premature uh, to close to the end of the year. On the other hand, there is something that I think has been immensely helpful for teachers, students, and parents, which is having clarity. Like what we didn't have a week ago was just this uncertainty. Was school going to close? Was it not going to close? For how long was it going to close? The moment you give people direction to be able to say, look, for the next two weeks, the next four weeks, this is, our, this is, this is what we're facing. People mobilize to that, and that's exactly what we've seen is, uh, as parents, teachers, and, and students themselves stepping up and, and mobilizing here. So I think what we're likely to see is governors do another two-week uh, extension, but, but that's all going to be based on what CDC and uh, their recommendations and also their understanding of the virus and uh, these other containment strategies. Right, and also the number of cases that we see, which changes so rapidly that what we know now and what we know three days from now is yeah. just a, a world of difference. Yeah, and as Dr. Fauci said, it's always hard to know where we are in that curve. You only know where you are in the curve in hindsight, but you don't know if we're at the midway point to the peak or if we're a third of the way or if we're near the peak. 
And that's why testing and, uh, and other data collection is just so important because that's what gives the health officials the data and the insights they need to know what to trigger and in terms of these other, these other actions. So zooming back out, John, when, when you were on this interagency task force trying to put together the playbook for how to prepare for a pandemic, um, you put all the planks that you could in there to get us as prepared as possible. You know, as you see this unfolding, does anything strike you as, aha, I wish we had thought of that. We could have been more prepared for that. Or is this just the grind you got to go through uh, when a novel virus pandemic comes on your doorstep? I think there are a couple things that we've learned based on the way this has played out. One is that these efforts, when you're doing the plan, captures a leader's attention at that current moment, at that current time. But again, if you think back, we, we developed that plan over 10 years ago. Think about the turnover with governors, the turnover with CEOs, the turnover with superintendents, people that were involved in the federal planning, state planning, and local planning for this back when we were putting it together, just aren't around now. And, and there, it hasn't been this continued effort to kind of help re-educate people about how do you refresh and update your plans. And so I think that has been uh, missing even in more near term. Again, we had this experience back in 2009, but that feels like a long time ago for a lot of districts and a lot of superintendents. And so I think going forward, we're going to be seeing a lot more sort of education efforts about school leaders, about how to prepare for some of these other other types of disasters or these other types of pandemics that we might be facing. Then second, like I think we needed to pay more attention to the equity issues that are really surfacing now. And that's remote learning sounds good, but what happens if 30% of your kids don't have the devices or connectivity at home? It's a lot of districts wrestling with what do they do in this situation? Same thing with special needs students. How do you continue to provide education to them that can't really be provided uh, over an internet connection? So, we're going to need uh, to really wrestle with what is the right response uh, for that, not just now, but in future efforts where, again, it's more difficult to sort of equitably distribute courses or content or other types of instruction. Well, John, I know you don't know how long this is going to last, but I hope it's short. Thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about it. My pleasure. So good to be with you. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, John Bailey. Thanks also to our wonderful producers who made this episode possible. That includes Matt Rice and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. Remember to subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and give us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, send your comments, questions, and topic suggestions to us at ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's all for today. I'm Nat Malcolm.